If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Sorry for interrupting. This is Dave, content director on HistoryExtra.com. I just wanted to mention that we've produced an exclusive eight-part podcast series called The Princes in the Tower, A Medieval Murder Mystery. It contains kind of everything you want in a mystery, doesn't it? It's kind of a fairy tale. There's, there's an element of the Brothers Grimm to it. It's the story of a, a downfall of a, of a royal family, the House of York. It's the uh, fall of a, of a young, innocent king full of promise. It's got potentially gruesome murder. It's got, you know, that kind of heartstring-pulling element of the fate of children. That is the irony. You know, you needed to be a ruthless man, really, to be an effective king. Obviously, no, The Princess in the Tower is the great mystery of the medieval age. We ran the first episode on our podcast feed on Tuesday the 6th of October, and you can find the rest of the series on our website at historyextra.com forward slash princes. Now, you'll have to register to listen in, and registration options may differ by territory. But once you're in, you'll be able to listen ad-free and to access a wealth of other great content about the princes in the tower, medieval and Tudor history, and all other aspects of history as well. So do please head over to historyextra.com forward slash princes to check that out. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we have a conversation about the great turning points in early medieval Europe. Dr Charles West from the University of Sheffield is our expert guide, 
and asking the questions on the cultural, military and social transformations of the era is our content director, Dave Musgrove. Dr. Charles West is reader in medieval history at the University of Sheffield. His interests concern the history of Europe between the 7th and 12th centuries, and his current research focuses on 11th century Europe, on which he's writing a book for Oxford University Press, and it's provisionally titled Between Reform and Revolution. Now, I follow Dr. West on Twitter, and I noticed an interesting tweet tweet from him a while back where he was talking about the choices he was making for a new course he was putting together for his students on medieval European history. And the approach was uh, to look at it via a series of turning points. Uh, And the moments he were choosing, uh, they sounded fascinating. So I thought it'd be good to to get him on the podcast to talk us through the selection and give you all a a very brief taste of, uh, of European medieval history as well. So, um, firstly, Charles, thank you very much for joining us. I hope you're well. I'm very well. It's great to be here, Dave. So thank you. Good stuff. So so firstly, um, I thought we could have just a, a quick chat about the process of putting together an undergraduate history course. And uh, and if anyone's listening to this and think that sounds a bit dry, don't worry, we'll get to the straight history in a bit. So bear with us. But I think this 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 will hopefully be interesting. So firstly, what is the time span uh, for, for medieval in, 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 uh, in this case for your purposes? Um, so I'm taking a pretty broad approach to it, Dave. Um, um, I mean, this is really part of a wider uh, curriculum, which goes from Rome right up to the present day. And I've kind of got charge of the medieval context. Um, so I guess I'm taking that really from the fall of Rome right up to, um, you know, up to the Renaissance and, and the 15th century. Okay, so 5th century to 15th century, something it's like pretty that. Pretty much, so, yeah. 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 Great. The medieval okay. millennium. Okay, um, so, 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 so uh, you know, that's a lot to cover, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Um, and of course, um, as you said in your very kind introduction, I'm, I'm kind of focusing on the 11th century at the moment, but it's very nice to kind of be forced out of my uh, little research um, um, corridor or silo to think about the kind of the um, some of the bigger pictures. Sure. So, just so, how does it work in terms of, of planning a course like this? Presumably, you're you're, you're given a, a a basic criteria or set of things that you need to talk about. Yeah, I think the the key thing to this is that this is a European history course. Okay, so it's about medieval Europe, um, and the challenge for that is what we've been briefed to do is think about how to teach the history of Europe, of medieval Europe, without being Eurocentric about it, okay? So it's not about, you know, the history of the the, the triumph of Europe or, or a celebration. It's kind of thinking critically and thinking about, um, you know, the experience of minorities, the experience of uh, um, diversity, questions of, of, of pluralism. Um, so kind of taking a, 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 a more... Um, historicising the idea of Europe as well, actually. So thinking, you know, Europe isn't actually a monolithic block, People have had different experiences, different times. And of course, the medieval millennium is a very long period of time. So there's a whole range of experiences in there which could be included. And the task of this sort of course, I think anyway, is to try and get at those as an interesting and, and enlightening way as possible. So let's talk about turning points a bit. So the, the approach of using um, turning points as a way to understand history and, and, and particularly the, the medieval millennium. Um, how, how useful are they, do you think, as a, as a way in? Um, I think they're great. Um, I think the key thing is to remember that well, I'm not actually arguing, and it's not necessary to argue that in each of these turning points, history hung in the balance. It could have gone either way, right? I mean, for some of them, that is the case, but that's not necessarily the case. The Really what I'm using these turning points to do is to think about change, think about processes of change. And these are kinds of ways of thinking about that change um, in concrete, specific terms. Okay, okay so kind so of pinning it down to places and people in particular times. And Yeah. Um, 
So it's more sort of pivotal moments, maybe, than, yeah, than turning points. Yeah, point. I mean, some of them are turning points. Maybe we'll come on to that. Um, yeah. And there are, of course, you know, there are many which could, which could be chosen. But yeah, and, you know, history doesn't always change, as, as, as we know. I mean, sometimes you say it does uh, hang in the balance. Things could have gone either way. But usually, really significant change comes at a, at a slower pace. The first one you've chosen uh, is, uh, is an, an, as you said, this is European medieval history. So, so we're not just talking British stuff, and uh, and that will come through quite clearly. Um, so, the, the first moment is the year five nine six, Pope Gregory the First mission to the English. Now, that kind of uh, that probably might feel like we're on home ground for for for, for some of the listeners. Uh, this is a, like the familiar story of the reintroduction of Christianity uh, to England uh, amongst these uh, sort of pagan Germanic settlers who've come in. Now, that's obviously uh, quite a contentious thing to say it and, and a way to say it um so i imagine you're gonna you're gonna be approaching this in a very nuanced way so what's what's your line on this i mean that's right i mean i think so as you said this is european uh, history it's not english history obviously this is a big moment for english history a really big moment but i'm more interested in it for its european dimensions and i guess the point i want to get across with gregory the great's uh mission to the english is really twofold firstly um I think it's re- Gregory's a very interesting figure because having said that this is a course about the medieval millennium, Gregory is often considered really as part of late antiquity. Okay, so I guess I want to, I mean, that's a, I, I want to get across the sense to which historical periods are made by historians. Uh, the Middle Ages is not a thing which defines itself, we define it. And actually, some historians have argued quite powerfully that Gregory the Great, he's not really part of the medieval world. He's really part of the kind of antique world, okay, a kind of prolongation of the ancient world, which is called um, um, late antiquity. And that's because his mindset is really um, um, still in- imperial. He still thinks in terms of the Roman Empire. What is the difference between the late antique and the and the early medieval? What's what's the how do the mindsets alter? Uh, that's a great question. I think it really depends. Um, I, different historians will give you different answers to that. Um, I think lots of it really depends where you're looking at um, Gregory from. So I think it makes a lot of sense to look at Gregory from the perspective of of you know of of uh, Christian Rome, the kind of the Rome of Const- Constantine the Great, and so on, and thinking forwards. If you're looking at him backwards, it becomes more. Uh, early medieval. He really sits on the cusp. Okay, he can be thought of as both. I think the way in which um, it is about his. It's really about his conceptual frame of reference, as I said, and the way in which he kind of is still part of the ancient world in terms of thinking, in terms of empire. Um, but he's also, to some extent, thinking beyond that, right? And actually, his missions to the English is, is a critical part of that. The English were not, or well, the people he thought of as English, were not really in the empire anymore. You know, I mean, Britannia, the, the, the island of Britain, of course, had been part of Rome, but they had been lost to, to the Roman Empire. It wasn't really under, under imperial control. And Gregory, he sends missionaries to them anyway, yeah, so he's kind of still thinking in imperial terms, but at the same time also thinking beyond them. What was his base reason for for doing this? Why did he want um, the the English to be, uh, you know, coming back into the fold? So two reasons for that, and I think that's a, it, this is this is the key question really. I think um, the first is is that he had I mean, he knew that they were pagans, so his knowledge of Britain is very shaky. In fact, he knows very little about it. Um, I mean, one of the funny things about this is that he sends this mission to the English. He talks about the English, the Angli, um, but the person who, who actually receives the mission, so this is King Athelbert of Kent um, and his wife Bertha, um, probably wouldn't have thought themselves as English at all. Um, and lots of historians have written about how Gregory the Great, by sending a mission to the English, actually kind of promotes and to some extent creates an English identity. Um, mm. And he does that primarily because he thinks they're pagans, which they are. Um, and he's also, of course, worried about the end of the world, right? And there's a kind of injunction in Christianity to 
convert the whole world. And Gregory's very aware that the end days are coming, right? He doesn't think he's going to see the end of the world himself, I think, but he thinks it's coming, you know, pretty soon. What, what would Ethelbert have considers himself to be, do you suppose? That is a great question. Um, it's almost impossible to answer that question simply because we don't have any writings by Ethelbert himself. Um, usually people, I mean, if we go by the... Um, Ideas promoted by Bede, Venerable Bede. I'm sure we uh, uh, familiar to many of your listeners. Athelbert was king of Kent, which was a Jutish kingdom. Whether Athelbert thought of himself as a Jute is um, at least as likely as him thinking of himself as an Angle. Um, he probably just thought of himself as king of Kent. Okay. So, but 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 the really interesting idea then is 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 this mission actually starts to to bring about the formation of of an English identity, um, which is uh, which is you know quite a quite a sizable moment then that, and i that guess i would say that this is interesting for european history too not just english because i think that's a really interesting one of the which we're getting at earlier contrast between the roman empire which is you know massive hegemonic um non-european um um, um uh, political institution and medieval europe is that medieval europe is is, is populated by by independent peoples right independent peoples who most of whom are, have been christianized and there's a really strong link between Christianization and this kind of ethnicization of politics. Okay, okay, so in the Middle Ages, we've got the English, but of course, we've got the Bavarians and the Lombards and the Poles and the Hungarians, and they're all kind of essentially independent groups. So the Christianization process, I think, helps cement that ethnic um, fragmentation of Europe, if you like. Okay. Now, this is far too big a question to ask, but is this the start of the of the process of the development of, of nation states and politics? <laughs> that is far too um, big a question for me to, to ask quite right there. But I think we need to be tread really carefully here because there is the risk of I mean, the English are not a nation in the in the in the in, in the sixth or seventh seventh centuries, but nationalism, when it comes, builds on um, a kind of idea of politics which is broken down into peoples so it's a kind of it's a separate process but i do think it kind of builds on on what's there already let's move on to uh 711 the year 711 and the establishment of al andalus uh so this is this, we're going to spain we're going to iberia um and 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 the point is that it's a reminder that europe was not uh always or exclusively a christian land so just just um just drop us into into what's going on here i mean that's absolutely right this is this is central we do often at the back of our minds i think have and have a sense of medieval europe as, as as a christian place um and there's some truth in that but um in important ways it's not true at all um al-andalus is for example i mean um, definitely by our standards part of Europe and actually I would argue in the Middle Ages lots of people thought it was part of Europe too there is always a geographical sense of Europe right the world is divided into Asia Africa and Europe and medieval uh, contemporaries did think of Iberia as part of that um, and of course it was Muslim um, not the only place called Sicily also Muslim for um, you know between the 9th century and the 12th century and actually even in the East Eastern Europe Hungary had a substantial Muslim minority population so I guess this 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 turning point for me is all about making sure students realise that you know there have always been um, um, Muslims in Europe um, and there has always been an Islamic Europe, I guess. And so, seven eleven. What specifically happens there? So this is the invasion by um, Tariq uh, ibn Ziyad, who leads an army across from North Africa. Um, and he tackles, he fights the, the Visigothic king, um, if I remember rightly, Roderick, and he defeats him in a pitched battle. So actually, this is one of those turning points, actually, where, you know, if that battle had gone differently, um, things might have turned out differently. 
Um, what happens then is, I mean, he, 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 it's a surprise victory. It's quite a, a massive victory. It's not clear that Tariq was actually meaning to go and kind of conquer and set up a new um, political unit of Al-Andalus. It was probably a raiding party. Um, and there's been lots of discoveries recently of lead seals, which seems to have been used to seal up bags full of booty, which have extracted as the, as the army then continues its march further north. The uh, Muslim kingdom is established there um, and it lasts for for a very long time, doesn't it? Is it it's seven centuries thereabouts? Yeah, seven centuries. I yeah. mean, I think it's most people would say it kind of it's it flourishes most in the tenth and eleventh centuries. So it's in the tenth century that Al Andalus is probably the most politically powerful state in Western Europe. Um, and 11th century, um, actually, the moment, ironically, of its fragmentation, it kind of splits apart into different little mini kingdoms. Um, but this is a moment of a kind of cultural um, um, blossoming, really, of kind of court poetry and court architecture. And, you know, the kind of golden days of, of Al-Andalusi uh, culture. Um, and it's also really important, it's around this time, too, that some ideas from um, um, Islam, the Islamic world more broadly get kind of filtered through um, into the rest of Europe. So good examples of that are uh, zero, the number zero. We start to see that in 10th century, almost in, 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 north, in northern Europe, almost certainly coming from Spain, the abacus as well. Um, and there's always been discussion about architectural influence. Yeah. So do, is it does it become the conduit for this Islamic knowledge and, and, and by it does. Um, I mean, it's worth studying the antique knowledge as well. Absolutely, it's worth studying for its own sake. And of course, I'd also say that some of the knowledge which is being transmitted is, is not ancient knowledge. It's actually you know Arabic Islamic knowledge where where they've kind of built on on the ancient legacy and that's being passed through. But yeah, no, it is absolutely a gateway, and that actually continues through into the 12th century when. Christian European ideas of Islam are usually based on on, on what they know of, of 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 Spain. The first Quran, for example, to be translated into Latin in the 12th century. Well, that comes from Spain. Okay, um, and you're going to talk about uh, this concept of uh, conv convivencia uh, in your uh, in your lecture as well. So um, perhaps you could just tell us a bit about that. And I, I think that's that's about um, the interaction of uh, of Muslims and non-Muslims, right? Yeah, that's right. So that's the it's this notion that, and this is this is one of these things where I think it's useful to bring in a bit of a debate that historians have had about the past. So for a long time, Al Andalus was considered um, for. Um, complicated historiographical reasons, but it was considered as this place of you know, where it was possible to have Jewish and Christian and Muslim communities all getting on pretty well um, all right. That's quite controversial these days, actually. Historians are no longer sure that's a good model for thinking about um, Al-Andalus. It wasn't, you know, we can't see anything which we would think of as a modern kind of toleration, but it does seem to be a bit of a contrast of what we can see um, of, of Christian medieval Europe. So the idea of a, a tolerant society has perhaps been overplayed a bit in the past and now there's a uh, a bit of a, a rethink about that yeah that's right but it's still there is you know there's no doubt that there's kind of more um uh, cultural diversity as a cultural diversity in al-andalus which would be difficult to match in in most of the rest of europe okay so you've talked about um uh, judaism as well in that and we'll, we're, we're going to come back to that in, in some of your other turning points so i'm just wondering before we move on uh, how um what do we how far do we understand how uh, the Christian nations uh, perceived Al-Andalus? To some extent, there was um, curiosity. To some extent, there was also some hostility. We might come back to this later, but some of the rulers north of the Alps actually start to explore diplomat diplomatic con uh, contacts with the Caliphate of Baghdad, precisely because they have a kind of common enemy. So there is some sort of... Um, 
there are some there are some military confrontations, um, but not all the time, right? As you said, I mean, Al Andalus it's around for seven centuries. It's not in a state of constant warfare, right? This isn't a kind of Europe which is constantly at war over religious questions. Was there a general fear of expansion for, uh, of of Islam from uh, from Iberia? No, there's a wonderful text actually I've been looking at um, where they. Um, where Frankish monks in the ninth century go and collect relics of recently martyred Christians, actually from who've been recently um, uh, executed for uh, for blasphemy, um, and Christian monks from north go and collect these martyrs, and they're very excited to have these relics, and they're not very interested in Islam at all. Um, okay, brilliant. Right, should we um, should we hop on again uh, another century uh, to eight oh two, and this this one sounds great. Uh, the the elephant arriving uh, uh, in Aachen in Germany, and so we're we're into into the time of Charlemagne now. We are. So this is a slightly quirky choice on my part, I must confess, because it would be more obvious really to go for the coronation of Charlemagne in the year 800 as Roman emperor. Um, I mean, that's the classic choice to make. But I thought, let's talk about this elephant instead. And actually, it's not a, so much different topic as, as it might sound. Um, Charlemagne's crowned as emperor by the Pope in Rome on Christmas Day 800 because he's already a really important person, right? And actually, the elephant which is sent to him from the Caliph of Baghdad, Harun al-Rashid, that's another kind of recognition of his importance. So they kind of go together quite, 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 quite nicely. Well, you kind of think medieval Europe and medieval Christendom is all encased, and the only contacts uh, beyond it are, are to go and have a fight in the Crusades and that sort of thing. And that is clearly not the case, is it? No, that's, I mean that's a really interesting point because actually there are two things I want I want to stress here, and I'm going to stress in this lecture. Firstly, and this is I'm relying here on a, a, a brand new book by by Giuseppe Albertoni, who stresses that Charlemagne didn't just get an elephant; he 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 asked for an elephant. He actually sent ah. messengers specifically saying, "I want an elephant." Um, and the funny thing is, I mean, we don't really know what Charlemagne then did with his elephant. Um, he seems possibly to have tried to use it as a war elephant against the Vikings. Um, that's where the elephant dies in 810, having been kind of wandering around Aachen for, you know, good nearly a decade. Um, and I don't know what the Vikings would have thought about being faced with kind of one solitary elephant um, you know, <laughs> rushing towards them as they're on their yeah. boats. But he does really want it. And what's interesting about that is actually that until quite recently, that elephant has been kind of written out because Charlemagne... He was called by a contemporary father of Europe. He's often kind of thought of as a, um, um, a key figure in European integration and, and things like that. In the 19th and 20th centuries, he was seen as a, often as a Germanic hero. What was he doing with an elephant? I mean, you know, it didn't really make sense. And if you go to Aachen today, there's a wonderful set of 19th century uh, pictures of Charlemagne put together to kind of, you know, imagine what life must have been to kind of evoke that picture. You can look as hard as you like, but there's no elephant there, right? They didn't want to imagine their Charlemagne, this kind of European figure, as, as, as not only having an elephant, but actually having requested it. So he was looking for a war, war elephant. Um, he wasn't looking to build a menagerie of exotic beasts or anything like that. Ha, there's been some discussions whether he had a menagerie. Later kings, of course, did do that. Um, yeah. You know, polar bears and, and, that, and that kind of thing. Um, he's Charlemagne does like wild animals. He mostly really likes killing them, I think. He does. He likes hunting a lot, right? He spends a oh. lot of time hunting. Um, so I don't think there was this elephant was um, playing around with, all, with the giraffes and so on. I think it was probably uh, uh, pretty much on, on its own. But. Right. You're probably not an authority on pachyderms, but um, <laughs> I mean, was uh, this, presumably this elephant would have been a very unique and exotic creature in the ninth century I think we can safely say that most people um, in, in, in Charlemagne's Aachen would never have seen an elephant before. And actually, we can kind of show that because there are some wonderful pictures of elephants. 
Um, and you can quite clearly see in some of them the differences between people who have seen an elephant and people who have not. They said that you, he might have been using it as a as a tool against the Vikings. Now the Vikings, uh, they're not in your uh, in your list here. You haven't got seven nine three and Lindisfarne or anything like that. So um, uh, how are they gonna how are they gonna feature in your lecture series? Um, I think possibly just 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 like that. Actually, it's interesting though. I mean, I was um, there's there's we can maybe talk about other points I might have talked about um, the Vikings and and other kind of missing things from from my little list. Um, I did, though, think quite hard about the Vikings and the Scandinavians' discovery, or sorry, um, what well, for them it was discovery of of Northern America. Okay, so yep. the settlement in, in in North America around about the year a thousand. There's a wonderful I means recorded in sagas. It's also been um, you know, archaeological traces are, are pretty clear, and there's a wonderful discussion between recorded between um, a, a, an Icelandic woman named Gudrid um, and a Native American. Uh, it's very kind of um, 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 they, they, their conversation is very short, <laughs> um, but it's very evocative, right? And it's the only kind of record we have of the European conversation with an American um, for four centuries. And the, uh, Geraldine Heng's done some really great work on that. Um, but in the end, um, I thought, Year of Thousand Vikings, the settlement didn't last long. In the end, I thought probably more important has to be questions of unfreedom and, and slavery. And so in the end, that was I thought, you can't do everything in a course like this, sadly. How important a figure is Charlemagne in in the course of uh, of medieval Europe? I would say he's a pivotal figure. Yeah, um, I think he has been politically instrumentalised for a long time um, until recently. I say he's been kind of stressed as a as a precursor to the European uh, Union. Um, I think that doesn't work for all kinds of reasons, not least because you know he is um, um, he's he's extremely violent, right, on, on occasion, which is not necessarily the model you want um, for European um, integration. Um, but I think he is quite a pivotal figure. Yeah, um, in terms especially of rethinking the ancient ancient past. Okay, so I mean he does in a sense set up the Roman Empire again, even though obviously it looks entirely different to what it had been before. So let's move on. And we're going to uh, the year 1000 and uh, and the end of slave society, question mark, um, which is probably quite important. So um, slavery and and uh, and that side of social life is, uh, is a very interesting and hotly debated topic. And we talked about the Vikings there and the Vikings, a lot of their raids were, uh, I think, predicated on the idea of getting slaves. And uh, Neil Price's new book on, on Vikings talks quite... Um, quite heavily about that and stresses that a bit more than perhaps some some other uh, studies of the Vikings have done in the past. Um, and there's a sense that maybe uh, in, uh, in in England, particularly, that uh, you get the uh, sort of the Anglo-Saxons were, uh, were a slaving society and then the Norman conquest comes along and that ends it. So... Um, I've probably I've probably got that completely wrong, but where 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 are we? I mean, that's is that. I think, a, I think a, no, a, no, no, these are all fair points. I think though the distinction we need to make though is between societies with slaves and slave societies. Okay, so okay. actually, you're, I mean, you're quite right. In the medieval Europe, there was always chattel slavery. There were always people being trafficked as slaves who might be uprooted from one community and sent somewhere com- completely different. Um, and you know, for them, this was a kind of this was this, there's, there must have been thousands of these personal and, and you know, familial tragedies. Um, in the wider context, though, medieval Europe is not a slave society. In that, while there are kind of people who are chattel slaves, especially by the way, I might add women. So women seem to have been disproportionately affected by this kind of slaving. Um, that is not the main form that unfreedom takes. In most of Europe, most people were unfree to some extent, but it was a very fluid concept and they weren't, um, they were not slaves in the sense of which you've been talking about. 
Okay. So what um, what would happen in the year 1000 or thereabouts to, to bring about the end of that society? So the key question here is, is this distinction between slavery and, and serfdom. Okay. So on the one hand, we've got slaves and, you know, the Roman idea of slaves, I'm sure you've, you, you know very well, a slave is not an enslaved person, is, is often not treated as a person at all. They're owned by their enslaver. It, it's, it's kind of as simple as that. The serf in the medieval, in medieval Europe is very different. Um, legally, unfree, but has lots of kind of legal protections at the same time, right? So, I mean, a classic example is um, in the Roman Roman in the Roman Empire, slaves were not allowed to marry. So their marriages were not legally recognised. In medieval Europe, of course, serfs could marry, right? And that was a kind of recognised union and bond. And the key question is, when does one become the other, right? When does um, slavery become serfdom? And the problem here is that it's kind of the same word in the sources for both. So it's not obvious, yeah? The Latin word service means both slave and serf. It depends on context. So the historian called Guy Bois argued some time ago that really we should start to interpret the Latin word servus as meaning serf around the year 1000. So that's why I've chosen that as my, as my tipping point. And is that uh, a sort of a European-wide um, development? Yeah, it is. I mean, Guy Bois argued, particularly in the context of France, and I guess I should add very quickly now that almost no one believes him anymore. Um, it's it's it is it's a, it's a kind of there was a little bit of debate about it, which is why I'm setting it as my as I've chosen it as my as my turning point. But the idea that there's a sudden moment when that happens is is probably not um, is, is is not widely acknowledged now. Uh, people would say that's yeah, it's more complicated than that as as history normally is. Um, but it is certainly European wide, yeah, and that sense in which. You know, all across Europe, and you know, up, up until the Black Death, anyway, um, most people are in a vague state of unfreedom. Some more than others. Some people, of course, might be more unfree, but also richer. Yeah. So status and legal status were not necessarily as tightly connected as they often had been under Rome. Okay. And does this? Um, you, you mentioned women there. So does this um, also speak of gender divides and, and different ways that uh, that sexes were were treated um, in this period? Yes and no. I think un- an unfreedom, as I mean, chattel slavery um, often seems to have affected women um, more than men. That's partly because the demand for chattel slavery was often domestic, um, as opposed to the kind of classic Roman plantation slavery, where enslaved peoples would kind of do all kinds of things, uh, work in the fields, you know, build all those, you know, all those amazing Roman monuments which which still survive, the Colosseum, aqueducts, so on, were built in part using slave labour. Um, that's very different from the medieval world, right? The cathedrals and all those, all that medieval monumentality, you know, did not have, um, was not reliant on slave labour in the same way. So that meant there was, you know, the slave, the, the chattel slavery which they were often affected was often more domestic and thus tended to be more directed at enslaving, enslaving women. So there's definitely a gender dimension to this. What was what would have been the religious view to all this? Is that does does the church? I mean, you one imagine the church would take a dim view of people being uh, unfree, but um, do they? Do they not as unfree on this. Yeah, not as not as dim a view as you might expect. There was always a diversity of opinions. Um, so there were certainly some Christian authors who thought. Um, I mean, the, the conventional answer to that was that slavery and unfreedom it's a result of sin. It's not a natural state of affairs, but we are where we are. <laughs> Right, and you know anyone can get to heaven, and that's you don't you don't need to have a kind of um, um, you, you don't need to have you don't need to be free in order to be a Christian. So the church kind of made its peace with 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 uh, unfreedom quite early. Although I say there were always critics within it. Is um, before we move on, is uh, I mean the idea of slavery, the concept of slavery, um, obviously abhorrent to to us today. Is that one of the biggest 
sort of disconnects between um, medieval society and modern society, do you think? I guess so. I mean, I would say it's a bigger disconnect between modern society and the ancient world, which was entirely happy with slavery. Brought, I mean, obviously, the slaves were not happy with slavery, um, but mm. the, the enslaved owners, there's very little crit- criticism of slavery in the ancient world. There is more in the, uh, in the medieval world. I mean, Rulers often, for example, get upset about Christians being um, um, uh, uh, taken as as slaves. They kind of, are, in fact, they have legislation to try and stop that happening, um, in order to, you know, so yeah, they've got the very clear sense that um, Christians should not be should not be slaves. So we do get a sense of, you know, they're not abolishing slavery. This isn't abolition, but they they are kind of more, I think, attuned to the, it, it, how problematic it is. Should we hop on, or have you got any any more? No, I mean, I guess I just, I mean, that is, I think it's a very interesting point that um, often we kind of think about the the, the modern, the the age we live in now as we kind of, um, we see the links with the ancient world in terms of, I don't know, sophistication of the economy, uh, in terms of of law, in terms of all those kinds of, um, 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 in economic terms too, but actually the modern world we live in has, it seems to me, and this is kind of one of the points I'm I'm trying to think about, there are lots of resonances of the medieval world too. I think the world we live in today is actually closer to the medieval world than to the ancient world. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And there's this very famous moment um, reported by several chronicles where um, essentially they, they, they take the town by luck and they pause because they say, there are heretics in this town, but how do we know who's a heretic and who isn't? Um, and famously, the papal legate, who's called Arno Arno Amalric, says, "Kill them all. God will find out His own." We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Right now, I, I fool myself that I know a little bit about uh, medieval history, but and, and some of these points I had to I had to read up on a bit. But the next one, I've got, I've got to admit, I was completely ignorant of it. Um, so, 1058, the uh, Pataria in Milan, um, and 
it, it sounds a bit niche to me, Charles. This uh, there was fighting on the streets in Milan in 1058 over the issue of clerical sexuality. That that seems quite a specific thing. So you're going to have to you're going to have to uh, help us out on that. Yeah, I guess so this is one of those points where I'm I'm using this not to say that history, you know, this is a hinge point for European history in this particular moment. It's more a kind of way of thinking about some wider issues and wider changes. Um, I mean, it's a big moment. He lived in Milan. And of course, Milan was one of the growing cities. Um, Late in the Middle Ages, it would be one of the biggest European cities. What's interesting for me, though, is precisely that it is a growing city. Okay, And uh, in the 11th century, from the 10th century, 11th century, we start to see towns and cities growing in a way which they hadn't done before. And that means you've got substantial urban populations. And that brings with it problems of governance. So the Pataria, that revolt in 1058 in Milan is... You know, it's been called the first appearance of the crowd in European history. We get these people running around, thousands of people, and they can't really be controlled. No one's in charge. Uh, again, I was, I was, uh, on this podcast, I was, I'm chatting to Ryan Lavelle, who's got an interesting book about insurrection and rebellion uh, uh, during this period. And his point is that there isn't the, he, you know, the rebellion and insurrection tends to be uh, from the aristocracy or the or the higher ranks of uh, of, of society uh, arguing for their position. You don't get so much um, sort of, of crowd of crowd disturbance. But and and I guess that that speaks exactly of what you're saying. You know, this is exactly. the Peasants' Revolt is 1381. So um, so exactly that's, uh, exactly. That's, uh, you need to, I mean, quite simply, to have a kind of crowd situation like that, you need a concentration of population. And that is quite new in 11th century. Towns had never totally gone away, but there'd been pretty small affairs in the early Middle Ages. Um, not, of course, um, in the in the in Islamic Europe. So Cordoba is a big city in the, in the 10th century, um, but that's organised on, on on different on different lines. So where so the, the the biggest cities in the 11th century? Where are they? Are they are they in Italy or where where, where do you find them? Yeah, they'll be in Italy. I mean, northern Italy is is um, northern Italy, and actually the 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 shores of the north of the North Sea. I mean, Cordoba is still you know some of these Spanish towns are, are also still pretty big, but we're getting this great upward trajectory, especially in cities like like Milan. Uh, Rome is still, of course, never to be neglected. Right, it's ne- it's not as big as it had been under Rome, shadow of its former self, but that former self is still you know still something to be reckoned with. But Milan, yeah, that kind of the Po Valley, I guess, and the North Sea and the North Sea um, coast, places like Ghent and Bruges. Yeah. London, how would London compare, do you think, in this? London's on there. I mean, it's interesting. By the time, you know, not long after this, of course, uh, is the Norman Conquest, which isn't on my list, um, as you've probably noticed. Um, but, um, you know, the Norman Conquest gives us amazing documentation. We kind of, with, through Doomsday Book, we see that actually lists quite a lot of towns. Um, and we see, you know, England's got about a dozen significant towns with a few thousand people, but they'll be smaller than, than Milan. So another ludicrously large and impossible to answer question. But so you, you talk about this as the, the the dawn of crowds and and but is this is this people power? Is this the is this the start of people power? Is this the start of democracy? <laughs> uh, certainly not the latter, no. But I think we can. What is interesting about this is the is how towns end up being end up being integrated into the wider political system. So. Um, lots of work on this is in the shadow of Max Weber, that 19th century sociologist. And, and he has this idea that European towns are um, are different because they're autonomous. They're not very well integrated into, you know, kings don't rule towns very strongly. Um, I think that's been, you know, in England, I'm not sure that's, that's really the case. But in northern Italy in particular, you do start to see places like Milan becoming effectively independent. That's more the 12th century. But they become these city-states. Right now, they're led usually by the bourgeois, right? It's it's, it's, it, it's not this isn't it's not being led by by the rabble um, in practice. It's not being led by the people. But we do see this kind of this new these are new actors on the political scene. 
Yeah, alongside your bishops in the church and the kings and the aristocrats, we see cities and towns, and they're starting to play a new role. And that's kind of complicates it's 12th and 13th centuries onwards. That really complicates the European political map. Okay, so we need to take note of urbanism as a as a as a medieval um, social changing force. Yeah, and also you know as as a kind of place of different experience. Um, Mary Rubin's just written a new book just in time for this lecture um, on on being a stranger in in towns because you know this was a place where. There were strangers. There were people coming to towns you didn't know before. That's quite different, really, from the rest of the countryside, where you're kind of living in your communities, right? And you'll, there will be people coming in um, from elsewhere from time to time. But cities are kind of places where, you know, there are always strangers. Just on that point, before we move on to the next one, I mean, as you said uh, earlier on, obviously, this is changing all the time. You know, scholarship is developing and changing. Um, how hard is it to, to keep up with all this? Because, you know, there is obviously you, you've got eight different aspects of, of, of things going on here and there will be 10 academics at least writing something on that right now on each one. So it must be hard to... Yeah, to... It's hard. I think it's, what's interesting for this is finding topics which I have got recent historically lot so it's this you know i want to have topics where the students can really get in and find out more about it for themselves all right so i don't want to kind of set up a topic where basically if you look into that you can't find anything else about it that i've said all there is to be said um so it does take a lot of time actually to find the right readings yeah which are kind of interesting accessible pitched at the right level for 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 the students and you know as you say updating it is a big task because history keeps on it keeps moving on right people do keep writing on these 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 great new books yeah, which is good, which is good. Right, uh, we're going to skip on. Skipping past 1066, as you said, uh, we, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're moving on from that. Um, and we're going, you're going to 1096 and the Rhineland massacres. Now, this uh, I mentioned Judaism earlier and w- when we were talking about uh, Islamic uh, Iberia. Um, so this is Jewish persecution. And I guess uh, our listeners from, from Britain will be familiar with stories of persecution of Jews in, uh, in England uh, a bit later on than this probably uh, you know the ma- major incident so um so so what's what's going on in in the Rhineland so massacres? what's going on here this is often seen as i mean it's kind of tied up with with the first crusade so what happens is as armies or, or groups of crusading you know people heading off on on the first crusade towards Jerusalem as they pass through Europe on their way um as they pass through the Rhineland some of them seem to decide you know, well, we're going to fight the enemy, you know, in Jerusalem, but why don't we fight the enemy right here, right now? Um, and there are some very vicious um, pogroms, I guess, or kind of um, assaults on the Jewish communities, in, especially in the towns of Mainz, Worms and, and Spire, which are all basically in the Rhineland. Um, and there's some harrowing accounts of um, Jews being forced to, to, to either convert or to die. And some of them choose, well, many of them choose to die. And there are awful accounts, in fact, of, of suicides and martyrdoms, of mothers killing their children to, you know, to, to avoid the fate of being forcibly converted. So it's this really kind of awful episode. And I think actually, you know, I've chosen this rather than kind of classic 1099 capture of Jerusalem. I think you can't understand the First Crusade, the motivation of these of the Crusaders without understanding what happens in 1096 in the Rhineland. Mm. How significant or sizable were these Jewish communities there? They're fairly sizable. I mean, we're talking of, um, they're, they're quite young and new, right? So there haven't been sizable Jewish communities in this area until quite recently. Um, I mean, talking the Norman Conquest, for example, it seems there are no Jews in England before the Norman Conquest. So they're kind of, these communities are, are growing in the Rhineland. So um, they're still fairly small, um, but, you know, there's we're talking of the thousands, right? So we're, and we're talking hundreds of victims, so proportionately very, very high. I guess this goes to the heart of the of the question of, of 
Christian Jewish relations. Why 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 were they why were they chosen? I mean, just religious, or were there sort of economic um, issues underlying it as well? I mean, it's interesting. One of the great things about this awful topic is that we've got Christian sources who talk about it, and we've also got Jewish sources who talk about it. So there are some accounts, there are some uh, chronicles written by uh, Jewish contemporaries and near contemporaries, um, and they kind of so we've got that we can see this episode through through two lenses, so to speak. Um, and while you know there are, I'm sure there were there were well there were economic underpinnings. This was nonetheless driven primarily by by, by religion. Um, so it's the persecutions are being carried out by people who are not actually from the towns of Spire. Worms uh, or mines. These people passing through, yeah? mm. and in fact, to some extent, the um, the bishop, for example, of these the bishops of these towns offers limited protection um, to to the Jews. Sometimes, more or less successfully, against this these these these, these marauding uh, armies who are just coming through looking for victims. Mm. So, would it be wildly inappropriate to describe this as a crusade? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I think. <laughs> I think, yeah, this comes to the question of exactly what the First Crusade was and what its intention was, which is very difficult to say because I'm sure you know all the major sources of the First Crusade are written after it succeeds, right? So we've got very little sense of it, or it's very hard to work out what exactly the motivations of these of the First Crusaders was because so, so much of it is written up after they manage remarkably to take Jerusalem. So I think this is a really interesting episode. This gives us an insight into what the crusading motivation was. This kind of this, you know, um, um, a deep and and really unpleasant intolerance is is on display here. Mm. And I, I mean that takes us back to Al Andalus, doesn't it? And the uh, and the and the and the, the the idea of tolerance that you were talking about there. So sort of another big question: medieval European society tolerance, not tolerant. To what extent was toleration a, yeah. a thing? I mean, I guess it comes and goes. And the same is true. I mean, there is also anti-Jewish violence and loose as well, although usually not quite on, on this scale. Um, I'd also say, you know, there are, this is, I mean, this is often seen actually as the beginning of, of, of persecution of, of Jews on, on, in, in Europe. So, you know, in Jewish scholarship, especially since the Second World War, this has been seen as the first act um, in, you know, a sequence which ultimately does go, ultimately goes to the Holocaust. So this is seen as, you know, this, um, yeah, almost like a new period in, in, in Jewish history. Um, I think there were moments of tolerance. I mean, the Middle Ages, as I said, I'm taking it as a millennium. It's not the case that everybody is at each other's throats all the time, but there is, yeah, there are these kind of, every so often this kind of rears its head, this intolerance often directed at Jews, and it's often quite essentialised too. So later on, you know, Jews might convert to Christianity, but they're still regarded with lots of suspicion. Okay. Yeah, so there's a kind of, you know, and some people, and uh, I guess, yeah, let me mention Geraldine Heng here, says, you know, we can kind of see the roots of modern r- ideas of racism in, in, in how the Jews are treated. Yeah, yeah, and that's a that's an absolutely fascinating piece of work from her on 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 racism and and where that uh, mm. forms. And she talks about the Crusades a bit as well in there, doesn't she? Um, I mean, that, that kind of moves us on to this to the next point. Twelve oh nine. Your title here is Europe: A Persecuting Society, and you're talking about the the Albigensian Crusade. Um, so. Again, we're in a we're in a, a different sphere here. Obviously, we've moved on um, quite a long in in time. But you better you better just explain what the uh, what was going on in uh, in southern France. Yeah. Okay. So this is this this lectures. Um, um, I mean, I'm afraid it's another massacre, right? And I I'm kind mm. of you know aware there's lots of violence in these lectures, which is in, in a way regrettable. But what this is about is the massacre at Beziers. Um, so this is a famous episode. Um, what happens is the Pope Innocent III has called for a crusade, and for the first time, this crusade is—it's it, it, not against an external enemy; it's against an enemy inside 
Christendom, not as happens with the Jews, kind of um, um, almost, you know, a, 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 an unexpected consequence. But this was deliberately attack, uh, uh, aimed at people within within Christendom. So it's aimed at the heretics, the Cathars in 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 southern France. And what happens is the crusading armies arrive, looking for heretics. They seize this town. Well, they they, they besiege this town of Beziers. And there's this very famous moment um, reported by several chronicles where um, essentially they 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 take the town by luck and they pause because they say there are heretics in this town, but how do we know who's a heretic and who isn't? Um, and famously, the papal legate who's called Arnaud, Arnaud Amalric says, kill them all, God will find out his own. Right, so this is kind of, you know, this doesn't really matter who is a heretic. If you just kill them all, then, then the right people will go to heaven and the wrong people won't. Do we, I mean, that's... That's quite a, a sort of disputed statement as to whether that he that would actually It is. Actually it's apocryphal, said, it? but it's it's yeah. noted already in the 13th century. So I guess this comes to. I mean, what I'm using this this turning point to indicate it's really it's about heresy. It's about heresy. Mm. And it's about attitudes to heretics, um, and the way in which Christianity, you know, or, or at least Latin Christendom, so um, Christian Europe, kind of turns not just against the Jews, but also tries to find an enemy inside, an enemy within. Yeah. Is it is it easy to explain just exactly what it was that these heretics believed? It is not easy at all. In fact, it's almost no. impossible. I mean, one of the problems is, and this is actually why I'm chosen this, this point as well, is there is a debate raging as we speak about whether there really were any heretics at all, or at least whether whether the heretics were really constructed by the church. Okay, so the church is looking, the church is, you know, is it the case the church is going and looking for people who have heretical beliefs and then finding them? Yeah, or are there indeed actual people, you know, missionaries from Bulgaria or from or from further east who are coming in and, and actually having constructing an anti-church? Um, and I think it's in some ways, it, you know, the debate reminds me a bit of debates about witches later in the middle age, later so in the early modern period. Um, when we see there's a growth of kind of witch anti-witch persecutions, we don't generally say, well, there must have been more witches. Yeah. Right. And in the same way, we see this kind of focus on uh, on finding out and, and rooting out and, and destroying heretics. But we can't necessarily assume from that that's because there were more heretics. It might just be because the church is trying to find them more. Sure. So where do you, where do you stand on that quite contentious debate? It then? is contentious. I, um, I, uh, I, in this lecture, I will probably just kind of present it as the choice for the students to make it. I tend towards um, the, the idea that this is a construction, actually, and that the church is looking for people who are heterodox. So people who maybe, you know, aren't doing exactly what um, the, the, the most educated clerics think they ought to be doing. And they're reading that heterodoxy, that kind of difference of of, of practice, they're reading that as heresy when it really kind of wasn't, or at least that we you know for people, the people who are who they thought heretics would not have thought of themselves as heretics. Right. So that's the line taken by R. I. Moore. Is that right? That yeah. is, yeah. And I guess yeah. I mean R. I. Moore was a a a a, a predecessor of mine as a, as a as a historian in the University of Sheffield. So I guess I'm following the party line on this. Yeah. Okay. So to, to understand that, you'd need to to read the, his works on. on yeah. That, and so. in some ways, this is a key. I mean, I said this course is really all about thinking about plurality, diversity, experience of minorities within Europe. R.I. Moore's concept of the persecuting society is kind of a really important aspect of that. The idea that this is a society which is organised around identifying and persecuting outsiders. Mm. You, you just, I think you've just answered the question I was just about to ask, but I'll ask anyway. So, um, so why why were, was medieval society so worried about heresy? Why was it such a big issue? 
I think, yeah, it's interesting. And, and I think it's nuts in two ways. I mean, some people would say this is a kind of, um, um, it's always convenient. I mean, it's have to have a war on heretics. It's a convenient political tool. So if you want to kind of attack, in this case, in the Albigensian crusade, the Count of Toulouse, um, you know, call him, call him a heretic or a defender of heretics, and you've got a kind of ready-made discourse there to, 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 to attack him. Um, I mean, I think also there is, I mean, that makes it sound too cynical, I guess. I think there is also, genuinely, there is an anxiety about um, um, about difference. There is an anxiety. There is a genuine anxiety that um, um, you know, all around there, there are enemies, and they need to be. We need to. We need to kind of control that and 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 uh, master this situation. I think that is a genuine um, issue. I think what R.I. Moore says, of course, he links it to the rapid changes which Europe is undergoing at this in this period, especially eleventh, twelfth, eleventh, twelfth centuries. We're seeing massive social change. You know, emergence of towns. I've talked about already. This kind of new clerical elite is being formed, and I think. You know, he would say there's a kind of um, attempt to define and reinforce boundaries. You know, okay. Who's in, yeah. who's out. Okay. Um, I'm going to hit you with another massive question, which is a, 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 another a stupid thing to ask. But I mean, I've asked this of a few medieval historians over the years, Do, but you've, you've, you've pointed it up there about cynicism versus um, uh, genuine belief, I suppose. Um, how, how, Christian was medieval Europe. How how much did people genuinely, truly believe in in the Christian faith? Do you think? And obviously, you can't answer that. But you know, I can't. Say I, I mean, it's a massive question because obviously the problem is that depends on what you mean by Christian. Um, I'm hmm. sure. So, from, um, my position on that is, I think most people regarded themselves as Christian, whether or not they um, would have matched the, the the standards of of you know set by um, clerical elites in cathedrals and, and monasteries. I don't know. And of course, the other question is, you know, were people kind of constantly thinking about theological questions every day while they go about their lives? Of course not, right? So, um, I am. This is um, by the setting by the twelfth century. What we're seeing is this is definitely it's in, the institutions are Christian, the education is Christian. This is a Christian kind of society, um, except for those parts of Europe, of course, which are which are not Christian. Um, I think the real question is how important was that was that Christianity to people's daily life? How conscious are they? Are they kind of you know um, how devout are they? And that's a very different question. I think some people are very pious, and some people are much less pious. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Okay. Um, it's clearly a, 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 an impossible question to answer, but but thanks thanks for having a go. Um, right, we're, we're going to move on to the last one, um, the last point, um, uh, and again a, a very uh, a very black one, uh, the Black Death, thirteen forty eight, um, a topic that um, I guess right now we're all terribly familiar with. Everyone's using us as for making parallels and comparisons with COVID nineteen and that sort of thing. Um, Clearly, it's a very important moment. Clearly, lots of people died. Um, what What are you going to be saying there? What are you going to be telling your students that uh, that maybe they don't know about? I mean, this is a massive topic, isn't it? And I think you're right. There's been so much now on on the Black Death because of that that parallel. It seems impossible to avoid, but there's also so much to read. Um, Monica Green has, for example, put together um, an American historian. She's put together a 96 page bibliography now on on, on the Black Death, which you can look at. It's available <laughs> wow. online. There's just a yeah. lot of material. Um, I guess there are a couple of points I want to make. I'm going to make here. I think the first is, yeah, to emphasise the huge death toll. Um, um, COVID-19 is bad, right? But it's not as bad as a Black Death, right? Which, mm-hmm. um, you know, estimates have changed over time. I think these days historians do tend towards um, um, a pretty apocalyptic um, interpretation of it, right? About 40% of people are thought to have died in the in the in, in Europe in the in the 1340s and 1350s. Um, and then, you know, as you know, it keeps on coming back. Um, 
let's hope that doesn't happen with, with COVID-19. Um, so I guess the first point is emphasise that. The second point, of course, is coming back to that point we've talked about a few times, you know, this is not just a European disease, right? It's a global pandemic. Yeah, and the Black Death comes to Europe through probably the kind of trade routes which are themselves being promoted, you know, the Silk Road kind of trade routes themselves promoted by the Mongol Empire and things. So, you know, the Black Death, it's a bit like Charlemagne's elephant, right? The 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 plague bacillus is another kind of illustration of how Europe was definitely integrated and part of uh, that wider world. So clearly, it's uh, I mean it's brutal, isn't it? That those those sorts of numbers would uh, would you know, are terrifying in in yeah. comparison to what and they were terrifying for people. Gone. They were terrifying people then. I mean the you know I've talked about harrowing accounts of the um, anti-Jewish of the Jewish persecutions in 1096. There are equally harrowing accounts of um, of um, of you know of the kind of scale of death, right? And there's these terrible letters. Um, Especially, I mean, there's a lovely set of uh, sources translated by Rosemary Horrocks, which I always get my students to read, called The Black Death. And there are letters in there by English bishops. And they know that the Black Death is coming because they can see it kind of creeping its way along the continent. And all they yeah. can do is say, well, we just have to kind of pray and hope it doesn't come. And of course it does. Um, the implications, though, of the Black Death are still being discussed, really. Um, economists, bizarrely, well, maybe not bizarrely, tend to think of it as in the long run, a good thing, right? They tend to say, well, this increases social mobility, it kind of concentrates capital, it, 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 um, it, it causes wages to grow as well. Um, I'm not sure that would have been much of a consolation, though, for, you know, in, the, in, the, in 1348, as you think, of the long-term potential benefits. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's the thing, is that there are various societal, economic, political changes that have been attributed to to the black death by by um historians in in over the past. so what what are the main what are the main areas of change that you would suggest um devolve from oh, and I think 1348 there are, and, yeah, and the there are two really i mean there's the economic the, the economic ones and of course they play out differently because in eastern europe we don't see the kind of um economic benefits in the next century or two centuries that 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 does happen seems to happen in, in western europe so i mean broadly speaking what i mean fewer people um tends to give um immediate the decline in the number of workers tends to mean that they can command higher wages. Um, and they do. And of course, lords and the elites try and stop that. Um, and there are all kinds of laws. I mean, my, my favourite examples are you, you get sumptuary laws. So these laws uh, regulating the kinds of clothing you can use. You get a few of those before the Black Death, but a lot more afterwards. And essentially, they're trying to stop people who they think ought to be poor wearing fashionable elite style clothing and it doesn't really work of course um, yeah. and you also get yeah you get this is the age of your right of peasant revolts and what's interesting here is is that what seems to be going on is that you know these lords and elites they are trying to um, stop the poorer classes of society from benefiting from their new leverage yeah and when they try and stop that that's when you get revolts and rebellions Right. Okay. Well, that I mean that basically takes us. Those are your um, your eight moments. Um, we uh, th th we've talked a little bit about some of the ones that didn't make the cut, and obviously there's you know there's there's hundreds of of, of years that you could have chosen. Literally, um, are there any? Uh, if I had to say which was the one one that you thought, oh, I wish I could have got that one in as well. If I had a ninth lecture, what would you? Have, uh, oh, I don't in? know, I and mean, I, I think probably I, I, I yeah, because there was quite a lot of debate on this, and people made various suggestions. I mean, one point, for example, is that I've got very little in my list about Byzantium, and I, mm. you know, I admit that, and it's, it would be it would have been nice to have, for example, the Battle of Manzikert, although I've probably got enough battles already, um, or maybe the 1054 supposed schism between East and West, and you know, actually, was that a schism? And uh, that can be debated, but it's a moment when we can see tensions between the clerical elites in 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 in, in, in the emerging Latin Christian and in the old 
Eastern Roman Empire, which we call which we call Byzantium, would have been really nice to put that in, just because you know, yeah, there's a Byzantium is part of Europe too, right? And it doesn't feature as much as I think it ought to in my list. And I was taken to task on that on on Twitter, rightly so. Um, I also would have liked to have put in, um, there's a wonderful, um, in 1070, um, this was actually on my list at one point, um, a man called Constantine the African arrives in southern Italy. He's from North Africa and he brings with him great cartloads of books, Arabic books, um, which he proceeds to translate and they're all medical books. Okay, so that moment he kind of brings in with him um, the most up-to-date Arabic medical knowledge and that gets translated into Latin. Um, very quickly, actually, and then spreads around the rest of Europe. So you can kind of see this this transformation of European medical knowledge happening. Um, and that might have been a nice contrast to all the kind of battles I, I've got. Um, but in the end, you know, you have to make choices. Right? What, what would you say are the main themes that you think we should be aware of when we're thinking of medieval European history? Because as, as I've sort of made the point a couple of times, I think a lot of our listeners are probably very familiar with medieval British history, but not so much beyond these shores. So how what should we know that we're perhaps we're not familiar with? Yeah, I guess I mean, the first thing I'd say is it's really very difficult to separate out British history from Europe. I mean, the my opening turning point on the 596 mission, I think, illustrates that, that, you know, this is a key moment in English history without any question. And thus also for British history, it's very important, but it's definitely also a European historical moment and only really makes sense in that context. Um, but I think I'd say, yeah, I, I, I guess the key message I'm trying to get at is that, you know, we, we shouldn't take the idea of Europe for granted, actually. Um the Roman Empire, as I said, was not a European thing. It was. It didn't really think of, it was, of itself like that. Um, and we need to kind of remember there's lots of plurality and diversity in, in, in medieval European history too. Right? I mean, that's obviously the case in, in Britain as well. Um, but there's, and I really wanted to get at those um, that, that diversity, those experience of minorities, you know, kind of, you know, when you admire these great cathedrals, um, which, you know, it, which, which, which people do, these are the ones in, in England as, as on the continent, you know, they're magnificent, aren't they? But, you know, what would it look like if you had, to, if you'd been the peasant working for them, right? What would it be like if you're a Jew looking at these and thinking, you know, what, what, you'd have a different point of view on them. And I guess it's that sort of diversity of, you know, I want to kind of represent and project that diversity a bit more. Well, it sounds like an absolutely fascinating course. I, I wish I wish I was one of your undergraduate students. It sounds it sounds brilliant. Maybe maybe there are some people listening to this who would be thinking they'd they'd like to do it. And I guess uh, they can uh, they can be applying for courses. Um, you, I presume, you'll be running this over the next few years. So it will. Um, so. I mean, it'll probably change as people, you know, so there'll be new books next year, right? So I have to keep it yeah. up to date. And maybe if people um, really um, have a go at me about Byzantium, I'll see if I can fit it in. Okay. Well, uh, Dr. Charles West um, from the University of Sheffield. Thank you very much for your time. That's been a very instructive conversation. I very much enjoyed it and I hope our listeners will too. I've learned a lot about medieval European history and uh, and it's been a great pleasure to, to learn from you, from you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Dave. Thank you. That was Charles West. You can also read a feature by Charles about some of the key moments in medieval history on our website. You can find that at historyextra.com forward slash medieval hyphen turning hyphen points thanks for listening this episode was produced by ben Hewitt and jack bateman tune in next on friday when andrew bayless will be speaking about the spartans